Hello and welcome to our podcast, Gurus at Dawn. My name is Elisa and I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello. And today we're going to be going into our fourth and final part of our deep dive into George M. Fredrickson's take on white supremacy. In this part, we're going to be comparing early 20th century experiments on policing segregation. And, you know, specifically, America is going to be founded on ideas of capitalism and perfecting capitalism. But it is going to be a great source of inequality and the inequalities that we see today even. And though it helps reinforce inequality, it's not the initial source of it. Capitalism by nature takes advantage of the most available class to exploit. In its most raw form, at least within the scope of the U.S., for the most part, does have a desire for some sort of equal opportunity and no real desire to limit certain groups as a whole. There's a quote on page 200 that really exemplifies the way that capitalism in practice has become one of the greatest sources of oppression. It says, Even when the structural requirements of a free labor market were roughly approximated, there was no barrier to private discrimination against those stigmatized by a badge of color that evoked deeply rooted prejudice and recalled their previous condition as slaves or conquered enemies. So because they offered no protection to those who were most likely to be without strong social standings, the system set them up for a sort of predetermined labor. Yeah, and because in many ways the laws that we're going to be seeing are in fact colorblind, they're going to fail to be color conscious, which is what you need when you have groups of people who have been oppressed for years on a social and economic level. But if you remember last week, we left off on the question both South Africa and the American South are going to have, which is who is going to be their main workforce after emancipation or attempts at emancipation were made. Both places are going to be hit with industrialization. And for the most part in the U.S., at least for the northern states, the first clear group that emerges after the Civil War as the main workforce is going to be a large influx of European immigrant workers. And while people may have expected to see somewhat of class conscience form, what is eventually going to bind them together are small subgroups of the same ethnicity background. Instead of all of the underpaid and overworked laborers coming together and realizing that none of them are being compensated their worth, they would often refer to success stories among their own specific subgroups, which in a way will fuel the American dream of what hard work will get you no matter what your starting socioeconomic class is. Again, that workforce is going to be mainly for the American North. And while the American North workforce is going to be incoming immigrants, for South Africa, they're going to move to contracted laborers. And of course, these contracted laborers are going to be overwhelmingly people of color. The difference we're going to see is that the newly immigrated people in America are going to have very small but still room for upward mobility. And specifically, if they wouldn't be able to become rich or wealthy, at least their kids would have a shot. As opposed to the contracted workers in South Africa who are aggressively limited legally and won't have any chance of upward mobility. Because both the slave South and South Africa are going to participate in using skilled workers to a degree before emancipation. So they're well aware of black people's capability to perform skilled labor. White men were so proud in South Africa that they didn't even want to be working for another white man. There was even a concept known as by -wanners. This term was explicitly kept loose in its definition in order to maintain its social prudeness. 
It was the idea that if there was a white man who had quite a large sum of land, might allot some of his land to be run by another white man and possibly charge them something we might call a landowner's fee or rent or something along that line. But they would refuse to have this idea of them working on another white man's land so they would come up with this loosely translated term that essentially had the same meaning of working for a white man but with the dignity still intact. And as for the slave South, masters at some degree had been leasing out their slaves to do skilled work. So they were both fully aware of black people's capacity to a degree. And even on occasion in the slave South, white poor people had had some really hard struggles in certain concentrated areas where they found themselves competing with the slave force. However, they didn't have any political power, so it never led to any real change because it didn't benefit the slave owners or elites of the South. Right before the Civil War, Alabama lawyer Robert C. Thorian tried to help gain poor white people job protection over slaves being leased out, but was shut down and thrown out of the state. Which is interesting because as soon as the Civil War happened, a new form of white supremacy was needed. And so they revisited that idea he brought up of maybe giving jobs to white people first when it benefited them. Yeah, and this fear of black people competing within the realms of work was not exclusive to the American South. The American North actually participated in that same fear on a pretty major level. The few black people that were in the North were completely excluded from skilled work before the Civil War, which is another reason why we're not going to see a huge influx of black people from the South until later on, because there was an assumed exclusivity to it. Now, I mentioned what workforce is going to dominate industrial north but i haven't touched on what's going to happen to the south after the civil war for the most part especially immediately the south is not going to become overly industrialized just the opposite actually by far and large it's mostly going to stay farm work and the main workforce for that is going to stay the black population because it was their societally accepted place and similar to south africa they're going to make black people contracted workers for them and furthermore like we mentioned earlier there was a fear of them learning any other trade jobs after the Civil War, and the main culprit for having this fear are the white people who don't want to see them in a competitive light. This is going to lead to pretty severe tension, and that tension is going to be used by spokesmen at the time of new leading industries. Namely, it's going to be used in the cotton mill campaign, which their biggest platform is actually going to be black exclusion. And as the cotton mill industry was the largest industry in the South at the time, it was effectively leaving black people out of the most available market. There's a quote on page 210 that says, The notion that there is an irreconcilable incompatibility between black labor and advanced technology, and that the latter is destined to displace the former, has been one of the most insidious and damaging of American myths because it can so easily be made self-fulfilling. And we can see this fear take root in the black community of an expiration of their usefulness in the only jobs they had been allotted before being given to machines instead. A prime example of this is the legend of John Henry, in which a railroad builder fights desperately to try and prevent a mechanized train from taking his job and it eventually leads not only to his death but they also ultimately lose their jobs so this was a fear that was perpetuated by a 
dark reality. Now, in South Africa, there's never going to be enough white people to do the low-paying jobs in the first place to entertain the idea that we see in the U.S., where they do have enough white workers to show preference to them for the most part. But it really wasn't only about not having enough white people to do the work. It was more centered around the idea as long as they had enough people of color to exploit, they would do so before working the low-paying and difficult jobs themselves. So what we're going to see in South Africa is less of limiting hiring black people, but more of limiting the roles and what kind of jobs that they can acquire. Because they're never going to want to see them in leadership or supervisor positions, as they know full well they're capable of doing so. And that would undermine the white supremacy that they've established. You know, many times what we're going to see in the rhetoric of the U.S. when people are trying to evoke strong bias, like the spokesman that we see for the cotton mill industry, they're going to say the black people are lazy in America. A lot of that attitude can be contributed to the fact that they're basing this off of a slave population who had little incentive to work, but also they're just feeding into an idea that has very little basis of truth. But in South Africa, they knew full well, as a whole, black workers were not lazy at all, and there was no hiding it because they often worked side by side or as supervisors with black people, while in the South, they tried to promote working segregation if they could. So in the instances where white people and black people were working the same jobs in the South, they tried to make sure they weren't doing it in the same spaces. And now that I've briefly touched on the American South, let's go ahead and move back there for a moment, because they're going to start enacting features within their laws that are not overtly as racist and unconstitutional as they want them to be by using different vocabulary attached to it. They're going to enact severe punishment for those who break their contract, and they're going to get in really serious trouble for what in reality is a very small offense, but it's going to lead to the white landowners paying for the fines that they accumulate over these offenses and demanding that they pay them back by providing them with free labor, i.e. slave labor. And keep in mind, these fines are going to be made very high because they want to make sure that black people can't afford them, as most of them are only just now entering the economy and have no savings to speak of. It's important to understand how deeply they were able to enforce this form of reconstructed slavery because each detail helps perfect it. There's a quote on page 214 that highlights this. The contractors relied on the police and judiciary to crack down on vagrants and impose exorbitant sentences for minor offenses at times when forced labor was needed. Conditions in the convict camps were incredibly harsh, and annual mortality rates could range from 10 to 25 percent. We see this very deeply ingrained in the law enforcement system, so this is what we mean when we say the system has been made to literally enforce modern-day slavery and is sure to be a theme in later episodes. To touch briefly on what that means in today's context, if you change fines to bail and slave labor to prison labor, that paints a clear picture on what's currently happening in our modern-day prison system and privatized prison labor. And the economic importance of black convict labor was a very significant part of post-Reconstruction South economics. Now again, switching back to South Africa, the first laws that we're going to see to be explicitly racist is going to be in the case of the diamond fields in the 1870s. In the diamond fields, only Europeans are going to be granted digger license. 
But it doesn't just stop there. They also actively would house black workers. And they did this in order to heavily supervise them, while also limiting their ability to have a life outside of their work. And when they were having some problems with theft from the white workers, because it clearly couldn't have been the black workers who had been supervised day and night, it was suggested that maybe they enact a strip in search for the white workers as they leave to go home in 1883. But they got so mad at this, they shut it down right away and demanded that it was clear white people would not have to do this simple security check while they were basically imprisoning the black workers. And the government will grant them this. Another clear instance of racial discrimination on a legal level happened in South Africa when gold was found in Transvaal in 1886. And yes, we did mention that event before because of its effects on the Second Anglo-Boer War, so it should sound a little familiar to you. Now, when gold was found there, they had a massive quantity of gold, but what they lacked was a high quality of gold. So extracting it was actually quite a feat and invoked a pretty intensive process. It was clear that since the job was going to be hard and the Europeans had shown signs of constant unwillingness to work when they weren't being compensated high enough, they turned to disenfranchise people of color who they knew they could get away with paying less. But the business owners are going to fear that many local Africans have little incentive to work there. This is because they wouldn't want to give up their family groups and way of life in the local areas that they lived without any reason, especially if they're not getting paid enough to leave in the first place. And in order to avoid their hypothesized high rates of turnover in the black workforce, they housed them again like they did in the diamond fields and enforced extremely strict contracts that had the repercussions of criminal offenses if they were broken. These business owners actually also got the South African Republic to strengthen the punishment that they would see for breaking contracts as well in 1895, as well as making it illegal to unionize for better pay. So it's clear that conditions for treatment of African workers would never have gotten so bad in South Africa if it weren't for the continual corroboration between businesses capitalizing on oppressed workers and the state. Employers knew they could get away with this type of exploitation. In a quote on page 220, it reads, Clearly the mine owners did not invent it, it referring to indentured servitude, out of whole cloth to serve their immediate economic interests, but in fact made business decisions because they knew that the South African context made a kind of ultra-exploitation of labor that would have been foreclosed in other industrializing nations. Now leaving behind South Africa for a moment and going back to the United States, while making attempts to exclude black people from the workforce is going to be their goal for a while, it is going to start being seriously challenged when the black migration to the north in the 1900s to the 1920s before and during World War One. Now before, they had avoided consistent unrest in the poor white population by keeping them separate from black workers, but that's not going to be the case once we see the shift in available workers. What the people in charge are going to arguably fear more than unrest among poor white people was an organic growth of a class conscience. Because as soon as poor white people realize they're being paid and treated the same, at least economically, as black people, they would band together and all of a sudden the elites would have an entire lower class force aware that they weren't being treated well. So employers are naturally going to do everything in their power to divert the anger from themselves and try to pin races against each other instead of allowing them to unionize together. 
And that's not to say that unions didn't form. In fact, the very opposite, they very much did so, but in such a manner that it was going to play a quite distinctive role in policing segregation and white supremacy. And speaking of unions, initially there is going to be a modest attempt after the Civil War to include black people in unions involving skilled labor, and one of the earliest unions known to have formed after the Civil War in 1869 was known as Knights of Labor, which did allow black people to join. But it was quickly replaced as the main union organization in 1886 by the American Federation of Labor. Now, the American Federation of Labor Labor is going to take to more conservative tactics because they feel they have more of a mass appeal that way. They're going to limit black people from joining. And this is technically less due to prejudice, even though prejudice absolutely existed and played a role, but more to do with their deep fear of having too much competition in their prospective fields. Because the more people they let into their concentrated areas, the less value their skills became and the less they could charge for them, which defeated the use of unions. And because of this black exclusion that we see in unions, it's going to be a huge reason why black people aren't able to start dipping their toes in higher paying professions. Now, while skilled work is going to be oppressive to black people joining unions, we're not going to see the same trend in unskilled and semi-skilled jobs. The United Mine Workers, for example, not only had black members, but actively elected them as union leaders. Another example is the Brotherhood of Timber Workers, which was founded by the radical group Industrial Workers of the World in 1910, and about half of their 35,000 members were black. The decline and sometimes failure of these unskilled or semi-skilled unions isn't going to be predicated on a lack of cooperation. If you look at page 244, Fredrickson states, the ultimate decline or collapse of such unions was due less to racism than to adamant and effective employer opposition to industry-wide unions that included less skilled workers. So in short, they would routinely threaten and remind lower paid workers that they were easily replaceable. They also kept them coined as unskilled, thus limiting their upward mobility in their jobs and only teaching them enough skills to perform repetitive tasks without learning the full process, all while consistently getting away with barely paying them, even though they assigned them the most difficult and often dangerous duties. Yeah, and with that constant threat of replacing them, there were scabbers or scabs who were people who would obtain jobs while a business was on strike or leave a strike in order to secure themselves a place. Sometimes scabbing was the only way black people were able to get jobs because of how much preference white people were being shown constantly. That being said, black people were most certainly not the only ones who were participating in scabbing, nor were they even the dominant group doing so. However, business owners would perpetuate the myth of black people being the main culprits of scabbing. And they did so to help reinforce race tensions. If they could convince white strikers that the reason they lost their job was because a black person took it from them, instead of recognizing the truth that their employer was taking advantage and causing them to go on strike in the first place, they could feed into the well-established animosity and prejudice that they already had for black people. And this animosity would get so heated that it turned violent. For example, the great race riots that broke out in East St. Louis in 1917 and then in Chicago as well in 1919 were due to this purposely escalated racial tensions. 
In the case of the St. Louis riot, which resulted in the death of 39 black people and nine white people, most of the scabbers had been white, showing that it had all been assumed racial tension in the first place. Now, leaving the United States for a little bit, let's focus back on South Africa. You remember how we mentioned before that South Africa had plenty of people of color to exploit while the American South didn't, which is why they didn't have the same type of segregation? Well, in the early 20th century, we're going to see a huge influx of a poor white class in response to a crippling economy brought on by the Anglo-Boer Wars, like we discussed last week, as well as increasingly less need for labor in rural areas. This is going to lead to what is referred to as the poor white problem. Because see, the issue is white workers who want preference over black workers are not going to be in the favor of employers that are still going to prefer a mainly black workforce as they have perfected that mode of exploitation because they knew white workers were going to demand for adequate wages and be harder to control unlike the black people that they had forced into over-policed living situations. This rising issue is going to be extremely intense and it leads to a pretty shocking outcome. It's known as the Rand Rebellion, which lasts from December of 1921 and comes to a very violent close in March of 1922. The Rand Rebellion is a strike by white workers who are so angry that they arm themselves and take a stand against the government if their demands are not met. And the military is going to respond to this by sending 7,000 troops accompanied by bombing planes and tanks. This encounter is going to result in 150 to 200 deaths and 500 to 600 wounded people, as well as the capture of the strike leaders, which four of whom are going to be executed. And you know, the government is going to effectively wipe out this strike, but the qualms of the strikers are not going to go unheard. And the government did address it on a legal level. In 1926, they enact laws that force mining businesses to implement minimum wages and show preferences to white workers. It goes so far as to offer white people job security and artificially higher wages for performing the same exact jobs of their people of color counterparts. This is so interesting to see because it's very indicative of how oppressed they must have been keeping the black population and people of color in general. When white men who are allotted guns, develop a sense of entitlement about being treated superior over other races and achieve such a devastatingly violent outcome, it somehow led to the eventual acknowledgement of the government? While that same government has kept others so marginalized with no hope of making it out of that oppression. It's absolutely crazy if you think about it, really. But to go back to the United States, a lot of these tensions are going to eventually subside slightly at least in comparison to how high they had been. Because some big events are going to happen. For instance, the passing of the New Deal in the 1930s, which beckoned in reforms that put limits to how employers could exploit the industrial workers. Another thing that happened is that America would experience a thriving economy as a result of World War II. And this is all coupled with a more sympathetic view of unions as people start to recognize the importance of earning enough money or at least enough to afford food and shelter. So it became more accepted that everybody should be getting paid enough. You know, like a living wage. 
And with more economic mobility available to at least white people, they're gonna start feeling a little less threatened by competition amongst races. There's also gonna be a huge party shift, which will lead to tensions easing even further. You see, before, most working class white people were Democrats, while most black people in the early 20th century are going to want to stay loyal to Lincoln's Republican Party, as it is the one that produced emancipation. But after the major party shift, most working class black people are going to switch to the Democratic Party as well. So it's really interesting to see what's going on here. While in South Africa, they can actively have racism within their laws still, the U.S. cannot do the same because the citizen status of black people after the Civil War. But that by no means entails that there was an ending to white supremacy, only a different pattern and vocabulary attached to it now as it adapted to capitalism and became a full-fledged mode of exploitation. And of course, because of the laissez-faire approach that the U.S. tended to take on a federal level, certain interventions are never going to take place. Black people in the United States were never able to fully experience upward mobility with the capitalism established here because certain measures were never taken. And they most definitely couldn't avoid the social and cultural oppression that they were constantly privy to on an individual level and through individual businesses. Well, federally, major discrimination was deemed unconstitutional by leaving so much room for states to make their own laws, such as the infamous Jim Crow laws, white supremacy was clearly still alive and well. And unfortunately, though this is not the end of the book, it is where we are going to be wrapping up our particular analysis as the next chapter is mainly about apartheid and Jim Crow laws. It's still a really interesting chapter to read if you're interested, but unfortunately it's outdated for our current comparison today. We highly encourage you to research more about apartheid because it is a very important and interesting subject and we will definitely be going into detail about Jim Crow later on, so no worries about that. One more crazy thing that didn't quite fit in the lectures, but we really wanted you all to know before we finish the book, is something that would happen in the Heronvoke republics of South Africa, like Transvaal and the Orange Free State. There's a quote from page 216 that sums up how they viewed and treated the indigenous African people of the lands they stole from them, whom they referred to as squatters. Those who squatted on privately owned land, which often meant that they continued their villages or kraals after some white man laid his claim to their land, were subjected to a form of labor tenancy a requirement that they work several months of the year for the landlord in return for simply being allowed to remain where they may have lived for generations. Boy, if that doesn't sound familiar. Wow. But I think that is going to be the stopping point. So we're going to take a break, get some tea, and we will be back with you quite shortly. All right, we're back. What kind of tea are you having, Elisa? I am once again having the lemon ginger Tucson. That it, I enjoy so much. It feels so weird asking you that question when I'm sitting right next to you and I know exactly what you're drinking. But anyway, <laughs> I am having Hongjinggui, which is a Chinese oolong tea. It's really great for re-steeping, but this one happens to be the first steeping. So I'm excited for the next one. I love that tea. That's why we're running so low on it. <laughs> yeah, we are. We're running. We're like scarcely low on it. But I was like, I need it today. It's a rainy day here. And I'm like, listen, I need some Huang Jingui and I'll make it last the whole day, the whole day, because you can just keep re-steeping it. That's the greatest thing about a lot of oolong teas that are a little bit closer to the green tea sector is that a lot of them re-steep wicked well. How about you uh, 
tell us about your artist, Elisa. Why don't you do that? This week, I decided to go with a visual artist. Her name is Marla Bonner, but she goes by Modify Marla on both Instagram and Twitter. She is a Black artist, and she does speak out on Black issues, although I feel like in most cases, when you are Black, you kind of don't get a choice in that, but she's still a great activist. (laughs) Um, And her art is gorgeous. She utilizes a couple of different styles, and they have different levels of abstraction or simplification if you will and it's really just gorgeous and diverse portraits and you should definitely check her out so my artist for this week and i swear i'm not biased okay but you have to hear me out on this one okay our roommate lena is an extraordinary graphic designer and i i mean that with my whole chest she is seriously so talented We will be linking her Instagram and please check it out. You do not have to take my word for it. Her work speaks for itself and seriously, it's amazing. Also, we can first-handedly express to you how great of an activist she is. She stays up to date, donates, signs petitions. She also did an awesome initiative where she was helping black businesses by doing pro bono graphic design logo work for them which was totally awesome and she genuinely is such an amazing artist please check out her graphic designs i promise you you will not regret it she's amazing some notable news that's also kind of happy news this week that we want to go over are some major things that have been going on with trump as well as the trump administration first of all the supreme court said he has to show us is tax return which is so good because he should be held accountable so that's a wonderful ruling yes and this essentially says that he's not above the law (laughs) which is great because i think we tend to forget that with all of the amount of power that he seems to have all the time so it's a nice little reminder of that also another thing is that some of his administration's policies for ICE regarding international students have been repealed. And those policies were so ridiculous. First of all, they were basically saying that international students would have to prove that they had a physical class that wasn't online or they had to go back to their country, which is crazy because everybody might possibly be doing online classes right now because of COVID. And also there are so many travel restrictions that a lot of them would have so much trouble getting to their home country. So it was completely not feasible for them to actually do. Yeah, so it's just really good to see the results of activism. And speaking of activism, our activist for the week is... Bria Baker, she's 24 years old and a recent graduate of Yale University. She is actually the founder of the Head to Toe Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that works to support women and girls around the globe. And she was also the president of the campus chapter of the NAACP while she was at Yale. And she does a lot of work to protect free speech community and to promote safety for people of color on college campuses. I'll tell you what, nothing really makes me as happy as women helping and protecting other women. That just, that's some good stuff right there. I love it. I love it. So we're going to link her information on our social media pages. And speaking of social media, just a quick reminder, (laughs) y'all. We do have social media. We have Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And Elisa seriously puts so much time in all of them. 
literally every day she is online trying to engage and interact with anybody who's interested please go check out the pages honestly her graphics are awesome it's so cool our pages look awesome so please go give them some love they're amazing and she spends so much time on them yes please join me on social media it's a lot of fun i guess it could be a lot of fun it could be a lot of fun um and also please tell your friends if you like these podcasts we want to maintain this level of quality and we can't do that while also being dependent on jobs outside of this and so it's our goal to do this full time not just because we need it but because we truly believe in this cause and we want to give you all great quality stuff each week yeah, and so a little sneak peek into next week. We're going to be laying down the groundwork for Civil War podcasts to come. And so we're kind of going to do a little unit in a sense like we did for Fredrickson. We're going to do several different parts of the Civil War and not just dissect the Civil War itself, but also the effects of the Civil War and how we as a country viewed what actually happened during the Civil War after it happened. So that'll be interesting. I think that's it. Yeah, so we look forward to next week. Bye.